This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Michael Santos, is the founder of Prison Professors, a nonprofit that we'll talk about as we go. He's an American prison consultant, author of several books about prison, professor of criminal justice and advocate for criminal justice reform. He spent 26 years of a 40-year sentence inside 19 different United States federal prisons. I think it's 45 years, actually, that you were convicted of, so or are sentenced to, I should say. During his decades of federal prison incarceration, he successfully transformed his life for the better by obtaining an education, getting married, writing several books, blogging, and working to prepare himself for a successful law-abiding life, even accumulating a million dollars worth of assets while in prison. Unbelievable story. You're all in for a treat today. Michael, man, I really appreciate you being here. Well, I appreciate you having me. This is super exciting. Thanks. Absolutely. Let's start with, so you, you, if you go through your stuff, phrases like uh, uh, drug trafficking, kingpin, those phrases related to you at some point in your early life. Often, from what you know, we see, uh, in childhood, those sort of things develop. You know, It's a neglected childhood, maybe a split family, all this stuff. But yours wasn't quite that way. Do you want to talk a little bit about your initial upbringing and then we'll lead into how you got into the uh, the narcotics trafficking game. Yeah, I, I grew up in Lake Forest Park, uh, which is a suburb of North Seattle. My father was a Cuban immigrant and came to the country with hopes of you know building a better life for his family. And sadly, uh, I didn't have the good character to follow in his his solid work ethic. And by the time I was in high school, I was running around with a fast crowd, um, and that's when really when I started making bad decisions as a student not really paying attention to education, um, really living kind of an entitled life with a bunch of, with a group of, uh, I would say, affluent kids. Um, and uh, by the time I was 20 or 19, I saw the movie Scarface came out. And instead of looking at that as an entertainment story, it led me into a series of bad decisions that uh, put me in the crosshairs of law enforcement uh, up until my arrest when I was 23 in 1987. Unbelievable. The, um, the, the at some point you talked a little bit like you had a a fairly you know a, a loving family and upbringing that doesn't support typically what you see of somebody who gets into the drug trade or 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 whatever it might be or ends up in 26 years of federal prison. Um, but you did allude at one point to sort of the hypocrisy maybe of your upbringing around others that you that you saw uh, uh, as a kid doing things your parents said weren't good and then like drugs and all that, but they dismissed it for because of other character issues. I had that same thing with like going to Catholic church on Wednesday, this guy's in the paper for DWI, but he's the great and beating his wife, but he's the greatest guy in the world on Sunday. Cause he has a suit on. So I had I, that hypocrisy really resonated with me. Did, do you see that any of that as leading to more of like that material based lifestyle that you went for and, and getting you into the narcotics game or, or no, I'm curious. You know, I, I, I think that, you you tend to introspect a lot and look back when you're when you faced a crisis in life. That was one of the things, you know. You, when when a person faces a crisis, hopefully that person is looking back at all the influences that led him to where he is. In my case, you know, relatively early, 
when I, after my arrest, I realized that I'd made a series of really bad decisions. And so that's where that you start reflecting and say, well, how did I get here? What, what are the influences? Am I, it's not really, I'm not really here only for selling cocaine. I'm, I'm really here because of the bad decisions I started to make when I was 12 or 11, you know, cause I was 23, right? So I wasn't, I was pretty young mm-hmm. and I started and I'm locked inside of a jail cell and introspecting and thinking of all of the ways that made me justify what I was doing. You know, I mean, I was selling cocaine to consenting adults and this was before the war on drugs really took off This Ronald Reagan was in the white house at the time and cocaine had a set, uh, somewhat of a glamorous thing. And I wasn't a you know substance abuser. I wasn't a drug addict or anything like that. I was just a greedy kid without the character to say, I need to focus on personal development to build a life of honor and dignity and contribution. I was looking for a fast road. And, and so I could, in my own, I think the, the wisdom of a, of a young 20-year-old, um, the immaturity of a 20-year-old, I could justify and say, well, you know, if it was okay, and, and I was involved in all kinds of scams when I was a kid, you know, my father was a highway contractor and I'd try to build his business by bid rigging and collusion and things of that sort, always looking for the fast route. And it, it really allowed me to justify what I was doing. And it, 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 it put me it, it exacerbated my problems because of the way that I structured it so that I, I would never be around the cocaine. I'd hire other people to do it for me. Yeah. It resulted in me facing a much longer sentence than if I had done it myself. Yeah, there was some uh, naivete you speak to about like, well, I didn't touch it, so I'm not going to be in trouble for it when that was that was the actual absolute opposite case. And I want to dive into some detail just to give folks a, a sense of what that lifestyle was and how you kind of transitioned. But one last piece I wanted, and this was for me, just as I read your stuff, I reflected as a father on my kids. I have a seven and four year old boy. Uh, and I think about you, right? You're being raised by this family, this, you know, kind of traditional family like we have as well. You know, that desire for uh, a fast material life, if you will. I get concerned. I look at my kids who like, you know, the toy or whatever, like I, 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 I place on them. Like, I don't want them to have that materialistic mindset because it could lead to bad decisions. Maybe not as, as extravagant or whatever as you, what you went through, but still I'm curious, you know, looking back, you had a lot of time to reflect just to a parent or to other people listening that are maybe parents who have young kids who say, Oh my God, this is my worst nightmare. I, you know, I understand that if the kid grew up in poverty and tried to get out and got into drugs, but this is a regular guy that grew up and, and did this and got a 45-year prison sentence. It, what In any of your reflection, what do parents today need to be mindful of? How does a kid not become uh, uh, addicted to the material or addicted to the fast life? You know, what, is there any, any lessons you learned as you, as you reflected back from your, parent, from your parents' parenting? Yeah, some, some big lessons. And, and that is really starting out by, by really defining success, you know, and, and having those conversations. And it's one of the, one of the areas that I really spend a lot of my time now is helping people get clarity of thought and, 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 and creating a value system by which we're going to live. So, I mean, I don't have children. I was in prison, you know, as a child and didn't get out till a 40, I was 49 years old. Um, but 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 I I do work with people in crisis, and that's one of the things that I always suggest is you know we we none of us can change the past, none of us can uh, 
you know, get a do-over, but we can always work to influence the future. And I think it's really important if I were a parent, it would be helping my kids start defining success and then talking about, you know, what is important to you? What are the values by which you're going to live? And then create a real uh, a plan, you know, an engineered plan where you're, you're setting very clear goals that align with what you said as success and challenge them every day. And, you know, that's really what my uh, focus has been since I've well, since I've been home, that's how I've built my career is helping people go through crisis and figure out how do I emerge with my dignity intact as a contributing citizen? What is it that I want? Nobody wants to be a criminal, right? Nobody want, a lot of people want to be rich, but right. they don't really go through all of the steps and say, how am I going to get there? And more importantly, how am I going to do it with my dignity intact and, and still live a life as a good citizen? So that's yeah. the main thing that I learned is that I, I really went down a bad path because I really never defined success. I, 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 I was after something fast, immediate gratification and not looking at, well, life is this long. Where are, you, where are the decisions you're making today? Where are they likely to lead you? And it was, I learned that I'd love to take credit for having designed that myself, but really I learned it from Socrates. And that's a, a, a mentor yeah. that, that, that really had a big influence on my adjustment through prison. I, I love your outline of the Socratic method, the questions you asked yourself when you, when you were in prison early, and you're not even in prison yet, right? Still in jail when you asked them, and we're going to get to that. Uh, but let's talk about this, this lifestyle. So you go from, I watched Scarface to now I'm a, a, a drug trafficker, essentially, right? Like, can, can you give us some detail? How does that happen? What were the steps? Where'd you get the money? Where were you? You were in Seattle. Oh, were you not? Go through yeah. all that. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a business family, an entrepreneurial family. My father was a contractor and, uh, really had high hopes for me as, as a, as a Cuban immigrant wanted me to have things that he didn't have. And I worked by his side from the time I was six years old and, and just didn't, I hated work. I hated that kind of work. He was, a, by the time I graduated high school, we were, he was a public works contractor and doing work for the city or the state of Washington where I grew up. And I moved into the office segment and began really taking control of the company um, just by using charisma and relationships. And as I said, I, I got involved in um, coordinating contracts for my father and growing the business. So I had access to his bank account and by having, and I had his trust and then I abused his trust. So what happened was, I, I think I was like 18, no, I was 20. I was 20 years old when that movie came out. And um, I, I just thought, wow, that's kind of cool. It looks, you know, he's driving, you know, I didn't see, I didn't really get the moral of the story. I wasn't a drug user, but at that time, in, you got to go back to 1984-85, before the war on drugs, before the crack epidemic, before gangs were really proliferated throughout society. You know, cocaine had a sense of glamour, at least in my eyes. And I was living a fast life anyway, with a lot of affluent kids and a lot of them used cocaine. And I just started doing my market research, kind of just asking, well, if you use cocaine, you must buy cocaine. What does it sell for? And, and so I got that price. And you, you, know, you must know somebody who buys in quantity. What's the price of it? And when I learned the price in Seattle, I, I started calling uh, people that I knew in Miami because my father escaped from Cuba and, and, and their kids were my age. 
um, and they went to high school there. I said, well, if you went to high school in Miami, you must know somebody who sells cocaine. And of course, that's, uh, yes, they did. Um, <laughs> and so I said, well, what is a kilogram sell for over there? And and that's how I learned. And so I said, mm, there's a big spread. You know, I think the price was like 25000 in Miami. And, and in Seattle, it was like 50000 so uh, thinking that I could avoid the problem, I hired people to, you know, for a few thousand dollars, I'll give you a first class ticket to Miami. You got to stay in a hotel and just go pick up this cocaine and drive it back to Seattle. And, you know, you'll make a, a five grand or 10 grand or something like that. And, and that's how I started. So I, I took money from my dad's company to finance a transaction, put the money back in my dad's company. And that just led into a, a scalable problem of geometric proportions. What were you making at the peak of this? Do you, you recall like what your annual income would look like? Um, well, I was only in the, the scheme for like 18 months, right? But you know, I made a few million dollars, which was a lot for in, in the mid-1980s for a 20-year-old. So I was you know, just um, living a fast, reckless life. And you were in Miami, right? You moved to Miami at some point. I moved to Key Biscayne and I was arrested on Key Biscayne on August the 11th, 1987. Yeah, it's incredible. If you, in reading your books, just going through bit by bit, you were married. Uh, Lisa, I think, was your wife at the time. And uh, that entire story of being in your Porsche and going home and going through the gates for the last time and all of that that you talk about is just, I, you can feel it. You can, you know, I've never been to prison, thank God, but I could just feel this, this stress. I told you I wanted to throw the book away. I was getting too stressed reading it, but it was really, really uh, uh, detailed. So what was the, how did you get, uh, how did, you know, the DEA or whomever get onto you? If that makes any sense. <laughs> well, I, I was, that was the problem. Well, there was a lot of problems, but the, but the big problem is the way I structured everything. I believed that if I didn't get caught with cocaine, uh, if I didn't handle cocaine, if I didn't do it, I wasn't breaking the law. I didn't, I didn't understand the law as a, you know, I didn't understand a lot of things, but I didn't understand that law. And so I hired people to do it for me, to, to pick it up, to deliver it, to do everything, thinking I was keeping my hands clean and just really acting as a financier and a deal maker. But I was, I, I, that those decisions put me in the, in the category of being a kingpin under the statute. That's a, there, there's a statute in the federal code that's Title 18 USC Section 848. It's Title 18. It might be Title 21. But it, 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 it says if you manage five or more people, if you um, have three or more overt acts, and if you involve substantial amounts of money, you you fall into this category of being a kingpin. And you know, I didn't know what it, that was, but it, but because I orchestrated it that way, where I hired people to transport it, to, uh, store it, um, you know, rent cars for me, I did all those kinds of things, and I really just oversaw it. I was a kingpin. And that exposed me to a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Did it so, matter? This? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's just how I, I got exposed to such a very long sentence. And uh, that, that that's really was my downfall was, was well, many, many areas. But the way I structured the organization put me at, at a much higher level of, of culpability. Sure. What was the, how did you get found out that you were trafficking well, drugs? Because I hired all of these people they would interact with clients. And when clients got caught, a lot of times, you know, these were all the same type of kids. They all came from business families that were involved with me and they were not, 
you know, hard criminals. They were just entitled kids. I mean, 20 year olds. And all of us didn't see ourselves as criminals. So when the law came, you know, it was traumatic for them. And they immediately started, oh my God, I'm in trouble. And they'd start, you know, say, I confess, you know, uh, Michael got me into this. <laughs> and so they would tell on me. Hmm. And uh, that's how I got caught because other people got caught. They were in the, where I was not involved in the day-to-day things, they were, and they would be transporting or something. And then somebody gets caught, somebody says something. And then, you know, one person points at another and enough people got caught and said that I was the leader. And that's how I got caught. Now you moved to Spain, I think it was for a bit during this, uh, during the investigation, but eventually came back. Was that a good decision? Well, (laughs) <laughs> There's a just, I don't know that I made any good decisions between 20 and 23, but moving to Spain was really a, 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 a not very well thought through effort to get away from problems that I'd created. A lot of people did get caught. And I, by then I'd learned that they were uh, cooperating against me. And I thought that, oh, simple, I'll just make a new start. And I went to Marbella and began building my life in Marbella. And, uh, then, you know, you kind of, when you're away from America, you kind of miss America. And I start convincing myself, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong, wow. you know? And <laughs> that's that's how I would say it. I didn't sell cocaine, they did. You know, I'm not really recognizing the gravity of problems that I had created. I came back and when I came back, I was arrested on August the 11th, 1987, a day I'll uh, always remember. Did you, um, I'm just curious, would Spain have eventually extradited you? Is that a... If I got caught, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't go right to Spain. As I recall, I went to Mexico. Then from Mexico, I went to Canada. And from Canada, I went to Spain. And I was trying to live a new life. But yeah, I'm sure that I would have eventually got caught. There, are, there, are, there were a series of bad calculations that I had made. But one of them, if I had stayed in Spain, you know, time going past would have probably worked in my favor if I'd stayed there for several years. Because remember that their evidence against me was other people's testimony. So after people got out of prison, they would have been less motivated to be talking about me. They didn't catch me with any money or any drugs or anything like that. So it was the the primary evidence against me was people testifying. And that's that's certainly evidence, you know? So I just didn't understand that when I was uh, an adolescent. And I, t- I don't even know that you could say 23 is an adolescent. I mean, I was a young man, but oh. very the older you get, the younger that is, right? It's incredible yeah. how, yeah, 20, right. I can't believe anybody took me seriously at the age of 20 or 22. When, when I was 23, <laughs> I thought a 30 year old was old. <laughs> exactly. I say that all the time at 23, 30 is old. And then you're 30 and you realize you're still 23, you know, and then 40 seems old, but then it comes real quick. So absolutely. Um, for you, when you got arrested the day of your arrest, August the 11th, as you mentioned, 1987, uh, can you take me through or take us through what that day was? Uh, just, you know, step by step, as much detail you want to, as you, as you want oh, to give. I, I, I mean, I know it really well. It was yeah. August the 11th. I believe it was a Wednesday. I went that morning. I was in a, in a, um, in a mortgage company's office trying to get a mortgage on a property that I own to raise some capital. And uh, I remember being in the lobby of that room and you, you, you'd mentioned, you'd said her name was Lisa. Her real name was Gail. I changed people's names. Got it. Um, but she uh, made a phone call home 
And there was a, um, a nanny there because she had children. And, and the nanny had said that there were police officers there. And, and I, I knew, you know, when I just heard that there were police officers that wanted to talk to me, they weren't talking about a speeding ticket. Right. So I knew I was in trouble. And I remember driving then to an attorney's office that I had on retainer. And he made a phone call and said, yeah, you're under indictment. You're going to, um, they're going to arrest you. And uh, he took off my Rolex. <laughs> that was the last I saw that watch, I think. Yeah. Um, and he said, you better leave that here. <laughs> and then he said, yes, go home. And I went home and I was, uh, and I remember pulling in and there was a gate there. The, the, the guy at the gate looked at me and I could see the way that he looked at me. It was different. Yeah. Um, and I pulled in and uh, it, well, I lived in a place called Key Colony on Key Biscayne in, in South Florida. And went to my apartment and there were three people standing near my, the entrance of my unit. And they asked me, are you Michael Santos? And I said, I am. And, and then they drew their guns and pointed their guns at me. And that was the uh, last time I was in Liberty until I walked out of prison on August the 12th, 2012. Wow. Wow. Um, on the way... Uh, in the car to to jail, I guess it would have been at that point to being processed. Um, they had mentioned, "Hey, give us your supplier." I think, right? Give us your supplier, and we take you home. Is that real? Is that something that actually could have happened? I oh, know sure. you didn't make that decision, but what what would have been the if you made the decision at that moment? Does all this go away? Does all that go? Does that well, not happen? No, go away. No, no, <laughs> it never. I mean, you when you break the law, it doesn't go away, but. But the the if I would have chosen to cooperate, they would have taken me home and tried to induce me to bring people in, you know, higher level people in my suppliers or or anybody else. If I would have cooperated, I, like the people did against me, right. you know, they lessened their offense by cooperating with the government. So had I cooperated with the government, the they would have left me in the community. I probably would not have had a bond and they would have dropped many of the severe charges that exposed me to life in prison and likely would have given me a sentence of five to six years in prison, which is still incomprehensible to somebody who's never been in the system. But it's far different from getting a 45-year sentence. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. Um, okay. So you are, you are uh, in jail What's your thought? I mean, you know, are you are you feeling as though this? Yeah, I'm going to beat this. Like, what was your what was your mindset, your attitude at that point? It was really uh, foolish. I mean, I I really thought that I could. I wanted to believe what my attorney told me. My attorney had told me that there's a big difference between an indictment and a conviction. Um, turns out that's really not so accurate in the federal system. If the federal government targets somebody. There is a very strong likelihood of a conviction, and in my case, I was guilty. You know, I, I was absolutely guilty of every charge they they brought against me, and all there was there there were many charges, as I recall. There were like thirty counts on that indictment of drug trafficking and f- currency related offenses and racketeering and you know, offenses that I didn't even understand what they were. But the big one was the kingpin statute that exposed sure. me to life. And my attorney told me, you know, there's the, the, with the right amount of money, you could win. And I had some money. So, and I had enough arrogance to believe that I could beat it. So I 
let's go. And I, I, I decided to go all the way. And instead of really trying to understand the situation and, and the gravity of problems that I'd created, I focused on, um, you know, just doing what my attorney said. And I went through the trial. And while I was going through the trial, the, the scheme was ongoing because, you know, I, 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 I mean, I had a lot of people in place and they were all still working and, and, and paying me right. uh, even while I was in custody. So, you know, I was a young kid making every possible bad decision that a kid could make and and really exacerbating my problems. So instead of trying to make things better, I went through trial, I committed perjury on the stand, and I was convicted of every count. Wow. And then indicted again while I was in prison for the ongoing stuff that was going on. Crazy. So it became had, a really difficult challenge. Had you had you turned on your suppliers? Had you taken the deal and said, "Yeah, okay, I'm I mean, you know, look, your friends turning on you comes with, I'm assuming, very little risk. You know, for them, there's a lot of reward. They can lessen their, lessen their sentence, lessen their punishment. But now you're talking about, I would assume, turning on people that, you know, potentially get violent. I mean, was that a calculation for you? Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that wasn't, there wasn't that kind of risk. Like, if you turned on your suppliers, do you become exposed to witness protection because of the, the level of violence you might face? You know, I I think that, I, I was never around violent part of it. You know, I, I didn't, I've never had a gun. I've never had a weapon. I've never felt threatened. I just, uh, I don't know, you know, obviously that's a possibility. I dealt with people that were, you know, serious drug offenders, but I was party guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> I was just 20. I was a kid and I, I, and I was guilty. Um, what could have happened? I don't know. I knew that I didn't want to do that. Not because I was afraid of the violence, but because I knew that the problems that I'd created were my own and I wanted to own them. And I wanted to, I trusted my attorney that said he could beat this and it was a foolish decision. Um, but my thoughts were, whatever happens, I'm going to re reinvent my life as a good person. Whatever happens, if I win, I'm going to you know, find a way to be a, a business person. If I lose, I'm going to change my life in prison. And uh, I, I just had that mindset that I, I had to own whatever came because I I'd made, I'd put myself in and, and I wanted to work toward building a life of relevance and contribution and dignity. I just didn't make that decision soon enough. What I should have done is accepted responsibility. I didn't have to cooperate against anybody. I could have said, I did it. I was wrong. I want to make things right. And... Uh, if I would have done that, I would have had a, a, a far different outcome. You eventually end up in Atlanta at a federal penitentiary. And I mean, you know, the the worst of the worst, right? Like the the, the hardest of the hard type of places. This wasn't, you know, uh, in the beginning of your sentence, at least it was not a a camp system or something medium secure. I mean, you were in a a full-blooded federal penitentiary. You're 23, you're baby-faced, you know, you're, you're new to this entire system. Um, what was that? I, what did you face there? I'm assuming, I mean, did you, were there fights? Was there, you know, attempts at, I don't know, raping you? I, I mean, I'm just kind of curious what you, what you faced. Uh, I can't imagine as, as 23, I mean, if you, if you, if you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening to your story, if you read your books, I can place me as you other than the cocaine, right? Just a kid from a, a home trying to make a buck. Yeah. You, you value the material a little bit more maybe back then. And then boom, you're in a federal pen in the eighties when you could picture 
you can picture the type of people that you're going to be surrounded by. Um, and you people made advances at you early and even in jail before you got to prison. So what was that like? Did you avoid it all? Did you ever have to get in a fight? Did you ever defend your life? Did you have to stab anybody, any of that stuff? I'm I'm curious. Yeah. So I was really fortunate in that I I while I was in jail during that really awkward phase between the day that a jury convicted me of every count and the day that a judge sentenced me, I'd made a decision. I was I knew I was convicted. I was facing life in prison and I I knew I hated being in jail. I'd been in jail already for close to a year and I hated it. And I was humiliated at what the 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 disappointment I'd caused to my family. I was humiliated to be in this environment and see my name in the newspaper every day as a drug kingpin and and I wanted to be different. And so I was fortunate that that a, a correctional officer gave me a book and it taught me about my first exposure to Socrates and it helped me change the way that I thought. And because it changed the way that I thought, I could put a plan in place. And that plan in place is what was going to get me through that journey. So now I could define success. I knew I'm going to serve a very long time in prison. But I always envision I'm going to get out of here with my dignity intact. I'm going to be able to put on a suit and tie and walk into any environment and nobody will know I served a day in prison. And that's how I would define success. I'm going to, I'm going to come back as a, as a person of relevance and, and, and a good person. So, so if you know how to define success, then you could take the next step and say, well, what do I have to do to get there? And that led me to this three-pronged plan that I really established before I transitioned from jail to prison. And that was, I have to think not about me, but I have to think about people like you and members of your audience and say, what can I do while I'm here that would cause these people that I want to meet in the future to see me not as a drug dealer, but as, you know, somebody who responded to a bad situation well. And that led to this three-pronged plan. I'm going to focus on educating myself. I'm going to focus on contributing to society in meaningful, measurable ways. And I'm going to focus on building a support network. And if I can do that, I believed I could emerge from the successfully. And I didn't know what I was going to get. I hadn't been sentenced yet. Mm. So then I get sentenced. And when I got sentenced to 45 years, I had clarity. I had a... a, a I, 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 I couldn't even process that, right? I didn't know what that meant, 45 years, I was 23. <laughs> so I had no idea what that meant. Later, I learned that I could finish 45 years in 26 years, but I'm going to have to, you know, how to even process 26 years when you're 23. I hadn't been alive that long, right? I mean, this is 2022, we're filming this, you know, 26 years, that would be what, 40, 2048. How do you stay focused till 2048 while living in a prison? Mm. So I had that definition of success. And so I, and then I knew I had to get an education. So as soon as I got to the penitentiary, I put a plan in place to start figuring out how to get to school. How do I become a student? And I'd been a terrible student up until that, you know, in high school, I was a terrible student. I'd never read a book. I don't think between the time I graduated high school and, and got to prison, but I started this path of saying, that's what I'm going to spend my first decade on. And so when you have that mindset of you know what you want, you can start making decisions accordingly. And I found my way to create a niche for myself in a high security penitentiary. And that path carried me through 9,500 days in prison without a single altercation with another prisoner. Wow. 
Okay. I'm just, I can't, I, I, I completely get what you just said. I, it's just amazing to me that nobody found it. Like, I just want to mess with this guy today. And he could, well, right? Like, what, what happens is, I'm not going to say it couldn't happen, but I mean, it's a violent federal prison. Yeah. And so, you know, Stephen Covey says, you know, seek first to understand before seek to be understood. So I went there understanding that I'm in a very dangerous environment here. And every decision I make is going to have an opportunity cost. It's going to have a, a position to put me, advance me towards what I want to become or threaten my safety. And, and so I could find my way. And sometimes I think that, you know, not to get spiritual, but when you're, you're on this path, you know, you, you can feel God kind of protecting you. And I was fortunate. I mean, the second I got there I, I, into the cell house, I, I, I met some guys from the mafia that, that, that were, you know, accused of being in the mafia and and they really had a lot of influence in the prison and they became friends of mine and i knew other people in the prison because i was you know i a lot of people knew i i knew a lot of people even in that high security penitentiary so i was able to get through it without a single altercation primarily because i i developed good friendships with two guys who were mm. um well respected as organized crime figures and and to to target me would have been an affront to them. And that, that would bring consequences. But then I, I also understood my place. So I would not participate in the types of activities that could, you know, put me in the crosshairs. And then I found a good job in the prison. And then I volunteered in a, in a place that kept me, you know, I was in the penitentiary, but I wasn't of the penitentiary. I wasn't mixing and doing things. And I, was really committed to fitness. And, and if somebody needed help with anything, there's a lot of people in prison that need help. You know, they, there's a lot of illiterate people in prison. There's a lot of people in prison that have a hard time. And if you, and I was a person that would, you know, help anybody. And, and I, I was blessed, I think, in that I got through some really difficult times that could have been very dangerous. But I think it all really comes from me not trying to be something that I wasn't. If I tried to pretend that I was a super gangster or super criminal, people would have tested that, you know. Um, yeah. But if I stayed away and and tried to be, I, I used to use an analogy. I said, "I'm going to be a submarine in here, you know. I'll be under the current. You know, I know I got my periscope up. I know what's going on around me, but I'm going to avoid the volatility as much as I can. And and then you know the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months, the months turn into years, and the years turn into decades." You know, I went into prison as the youngest person in the penitentiary, and it didn't take long before I looked around and said, how did I become the oldest guy here? <laughs> <laughs> Time flies even there, I guess, to some extent. But uh, it's funny you say about the every decision you made, you had to scrutinize. I remember reading about uh, on the bus on the way there, sitting next to a, uh, an older prisoner who got in a conversation with another prisoner, and that older pr that prisoner told you to get up. And what was interesting with the ultimate in accountability in that moment, it sounded like you were like, well, I shouldn't have sat there in the first place. That's on me. That's the that's the level. Like you think about it in day to day life, you know, be careful with the decisions you make. Yours came down to every move. Like if I sit there, what's the potential consequence of doing so? Right? Like you had to think in you know two, three, four steps ahead, which is that's insane. Incredible. Well, isn't, isn't that the same in business? You know, I mean, it's the difference. I, I know that a lot of your audience are entrepreneurs, and some of them, you know, you could you you could use any any business as an example, right? I mean, you drive down the road and you see Joe's hamburgers. You know, and he's got one stand and, you know, 
three people working and they're, they're doing pretty well. And you walk, drive down the other road and you see McDonald's, you know, what's the difference, yeah. right? What's the difference? It's that one person created a system and a plan and you recognize how every decision comes with an opportunity cost, a SWOT analysis, you know, and, and they figure that out. Well, that's what prison's like. It really conditions a person to realize we're accountable for our own actions and we either create opportunities or we create excuses. And, and it's our choice. I, I didn't make excuses. I knew where I was. I knew it wasn't a place that I hated. And I knew that I wanted to come back. And I knew that when I came back, if I didn't create, I would have a, a, a brand new prison, a, a prison of unemployment or underemployment or lack of opportunity. Or I could come back strong. And I, I know, knew that if I wanted the latter, I, every decision would become important. The uh, the concept of uh, of tribe, right? Tribe millionaires finding these these two guys that you could you know, link up with there just for the safety of your life. But I love what you talk about with the Socratic method, asking what's the avatar of the individual that I want to be around, and creating that before you knew who that person was, before there was a face on it, creating that avatar. I thought that was a really great Socratic type question. I love that. Um, this question I'm struggling to ask, but I, I think you'll get where I'm going with it because you had a long time to reflect on. There's this. nothing you can't ask. Well, no, I know, but I, I, it's a, it's an odd question potentially, or maybe you've been asked it a million times before, but your circumstances are what they are. You can't change it, right? You had, you went to prison, you spent 26 years and you're out. Is there, is there a sense that you had to go through this? Like talk spiritually, is there gratitude for having gone through this in any way, shape or form because of where you are today and what you're working on? Like in some weird way, is this, do you, do you, do you see this as a step, God, 26 years, a step on the path of your life's purpose or is there full regret in all of it? I have no regret. I mean, other than than the bad decisions I made as a kid. You know, I, I regret that I caused heartache to my mother and my father and disappointed my family and my community and the opportunities that I had. I regret that. But when I went to prison, I am very grateful that I had an opportunity to, to, to have a, an awakening, an epiphany. And that epiphany started with Socrates, um, reading the Republic, and then it led to reading about other people in struggle, and whether it was Mandela or Viktor Frankl or um, Gandhi, um, who told us to try and be the change that we want to see in the world. And that became a, a, a beacon for me that I could work toward. I want to be better, and I want to create meaning out of this and, and have an impact on the lives of others. And that, that clarity of thought over time, I mean, I forgot the name of that. Malcolm Gladwell who wrote, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to become yeah. a master of anything, an expert of anything. You know, I was in prison for 10,000 days, you know, so times 240,000 hours of focusing on this. And it really made a big difference on carving out my life and, and saying, I, I want to create opportunities while I am in prison that will help me contribute to the lives of others. And, and I was really fortunate in that those opportunities surfaced. I was able to get an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, become a published author, got married in prison, made money in prison, emerged with income opportunities. And all of that happened really because I read The Republic. And mm. that's why I feel so passionately about trying to help other people in struggle realize everybody has the power within to, to make a better life. Amazing. Today, I'm curious, uh, given the time that you, you were, you were convicted and sentenced, you mentioned it, war on drugs. I remember that it was huge, right? Nancy Reagan, the whole nine say no to drugs. 
are you con- are you sentenced to forty five years for the crimes if they were if they were committed today? Same crimes they were committed today. From what you, I mean, I know you don't know. No, any judge could do whatever, but is it likely that you get the same sentence if they happen today? Well, today, if somebody's going to federal prison, there's never a better time than today. I went to prison during the start, the dawn of mass incarceration. And, you know, I think society right now has moved in a different direction where it's recognizing this is a bad system. Um, we serve sentence, we sentence people, too many people to prison, and they serve sentences that are far too long. And the reforms that were taking place when I went to prison um, were all harsher. And, you know, right now, I got sentenced under a different sentencing law than exists today. During, sure. the, 40, the, during the sentencing law that I got exist, sentenced to in 1987, there has since been the implementation of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, which brought in the federal sentencing guidelines. Those didn't apply to me. And there was, there are, then there were other uh, legislative and judicial opinions that, that, that case law that changed the system. So right now we're in an era where you're seeing a lot more reforms and recognizing we should, the, the goal should not be to extinguish hope, but rather to prepare people for law abiding, contributing lives upon release. So today's sentence, I would not have gotten 45 years because I would have been under the new law, but I also would not have received as much good time as I received. I did 26 years, which was every day of that sentence um, because you got credit, not for, they call it good time, but it's really the avoidance of bad time. Everybody got it if you didn't get in trouble. Uh, I didn't get in trouble in prison. So I, I received all of the good time credits, which means that I served 26 years or 9,500 days. Today's sentence would be a little bit different. I probably, a, a, a person with a similar background today would probably receive somewhere around 20 years. And of that 20 years, if the person did everything right, the person might serve, would probably serve 10 to 12 which is still a very long time, sure. but, but it, it would not have been what I, what I served. I don't think. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, again, you know, it, it is what it is. What happened is what happened. So, uh, take us forward now. So your, your, your level of security, uh, decreases as you've gone through your sentence, correct? You go to medium, you go to the camp system and so on. Uh, and I think you were released year 25 to a halfway house, right? So you served your last year uh, sort of outside of prison, but still in a halfway house. What was that first day like being released? Uh, you were married, like you mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but tell me a bit about about that first day. What was that like? So I, I should preface this by by helping my business is really, I, I'm not a prison consultant. I have, a, I own a business that they do that. I'm, a, I'm more in the nonprofit side. Yeah. Um, the difference was for me is I was ready. You know, most people sadly that serve long sentences or even short sentences have a really hard time adjusting. So I, I always like to say I'm not probably the typical example because I mean, I had a hundred grand in the bank when I got out of prison. I had many income opportunities and I knew what I was going to do. I was deliberate. Um, and, and so <laughs> the funniest thing for me was, you know, I, I, I knew what I was going to do, but I did, but there were some things that I didn't know. Like I didn't know I forgot how to drive <laughs> yeah. and I didn't know 
that I didn't know how to eat with silverware because in prison, you don't touch metal, right? So you're used to plastic. Everything's plastic and little. And, you know, and, and so I remember coming home and, I, and my wife, who, we'd been married by then for 10 years and it's Carol. Uh, we got married inside of a prison visiting room and, and she's picking me up. And it was just, you know, really amazing because we'd been married for 10 years, but we'd never been together other than in a visiting room. So this is the first time I'm seeing her outside of a prison environment and holding her outside of a prison environment. And I remember that I had a very short window to get from prison to the halfway house. I had like three hours and I was in the the Central Valley of California, a place called Atwater. And I had to get to the city, San Francisco. And it was like three hours. And I think that's what they gave me, three hours. And, you know, she had this technology that I'd never seen before, right? I went into prison, there was no email, there was no cell phones like there are today. And she was able to look and she already could see that we were late. So we didn't have time. And there was a an opportunity cost. If I got there late, I knew that I could lose privileges, such as the possibility to go to work, the possibility for home confinement, the possibility for home passes. So we had to rush to get there. And um, which was a bummer because, you know, you've been married for 10 years. You want to do something more than just get to the prison. <laughs> but I had to, we had to get there. Um, and uh, so, so it wasn't the first day before she came. I told her I really wanted to have a pizza because <laughs> I hadn't had a pizza in a long time. So she brought a pizza and she picked me up and I'm, I'm you know, just inhaling this pizza. How I'm good so was that happy. pizza? How was good was amazing. that pizza? <laughs> it <Yeah>. was amazing. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so that was awesome. But she she also gave me, a, a, you know, one of these things. I don't know if you've seen one of these things before, an iPhone. <laughs> but she gave me this thing and, and she said, this is your iPhone, you know. And, and, I, and I put it, I said, this one's broken. There's no dial tone, you know, because that's what I was used to in the real world, right? And so I didn't, I, it took me a while. Then, and I never, you know, I'd, I'd read about the internet. I'd studied the internet. I had a web page for years. <laughs> But I never experienced it. And so I was so excited to see the internet. You know, where, how, what's the internet? How do I get to it? You know, and, and so she was kind of teaching me as I'm driving, as she's driving. And then it wasn't only the first day, though. Then, then I had to get a driver's license, you know, and that's when I realized I didn't know how to drive anymore. And you never think you're going to forget how to drive. I didn't know when I forgot how to drive. I, I didn't know that I forgot how to drive. But when I got behind the wheel of a car, I realized, holy, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and I realized why. And here's the reason why. is because when you're in prison, you never move faster than your legs can carry you. Yeah. You know, so your eyes adjust differently. So you're, you're not used to the cars zooming by and your eyes can't process it. Yeah. So that was really difficult for me to learn how to get that sense back. And, and it was difficult also for me to learn how to drink out of glasses, you know, and ceramic <laughs> instead of plastic. And that took a few months before I got used to it. Unbelievable. Now in prison, you wrote... Uh, but other things were easy. Oh. Getting in the business world. I mean, I bought my first house within a couple of days of getting out of prison, which is a great story too. It is a I great story. I started building my career right away. Yeah, right in this book. I'm, I'm serious. People should pick this up. Success after prison. There's some amazing stories and earning freedom is great. And you have many others. But And you wrote a bunch of these, uh, well, not after prison, but you wrote some of these uh, uh, books in prison, you built uh, a portfolio in prison. Uh, walk me like this is maybe just like something I've heard, but I didn't think you could uh, profit from your endeavors while in prison. How did you? How did you do that? If you did, oh, I definitely did. Um, <laughs> but but you know, for me, it was never about being a model inmate, right? It was always about being successful upon release. You know, I define success 
It's not to get out of prison and say, oh, I have no disciplinary infractions. That, that meant nothing to me. To come back to society strong, an ability to function, that meant the world to me. So I had mentioned earlier that I pursued an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and, and I was in a PhD program. And But it was the dawn, it was the, the height of the war on drugs, the height of mass incarceration. And they blocked me from getting my PhD. Mm. So when they blocked me from getting my PhD, this is right at the dawn of the internet. This is like 1997, 98. And by then I'd been in prison for 10 years. Actually, it was early. I got my master's in 95. So it was like 96 or so. And I changed my focus to become an investor. And, you know, at that time, you know, there was the internet was considered by many people to be, you know, a, a fantasy and not what real, but I was studying the journal and investors business daily and learning about the markets. And, and I really believed that the internet was going to change the world and I wanted to own a piece of it. And I purchased, started purchasing stock in America online and Yahoo. Mm -hmm. And this is the, those were the, you know, that was the, the, the Google and, and uh, Apple of that, of the day back then Apple was trading like, you know, split adjusted, but probably 20 cents a share. It was like, it was $20. I remember <laughs> at, at the back then, because I remember looking at Apple that it just Microsoft dominated. Um, and anyway, I started investing and started using margin and leveraging my way. And before, you know, just really got lucky in catching that wave of, of hyperbolic growth and, and, turn a few thousand dollars that I'd earned from writing and publishing into more than a million dollars in prison. Mm. Um, and that was a phenomenal experience for me. Then, uh, and the, how did I do it? I went to the captain of the institution and that, that's the person who runs security. And I, and I told him, I said, you know, you stopped me from getting my PhD. You know, I want to invest. I want to start, you know, investing in the market. And, and is that okay? And he said, no, you can't do that while you're here. And I said, you know, what do you expect me to do? I've got 18 years left to go in prison and I don't want to go home and have nothing. And I, and I want to be a part of the, you know, the, the community. And, and he said, well, buy a mutual fund. And I, and I told him, you know, I know 10 guys in this prison that are here for running mutual funds and scamming people. I don't want to do that. I think I can do it myself. Right, right. And uh, he said, well, give power of attorney to somebody. So I said, you're saying then if I have my sister open an account. I could, you'll allow me to tell her what to do. He said, as long as you're not pulling the trigger, you're okay. So we had CNBC in there. I became a big fan of CNBC and learned a great deal from watching, um, you know, back then it was Mark Haynes and David Favor and, and, and uh, what was that? I got the same. Uh, he's still on. I forgot his name. No. Jim Cramer. Uh, Cramer was kind of not as big of a star as he was right now. Um, the, he anyway, there's a lot of people there. Yeah. The blonde hair, Joe Kernan. Yeah, so I'd get up every morning, four in the morning. I'd be watching the markets and learning and investing and calling my sister and telling her what to do, using margin and just leveraging a two thousand dollar investment, growing, growing, growing. Every time I get buying power, buy more, and caught the wave, you know. And that's how I did it. That's how I made my first money in prison when mm -hmm. I was in like my twelfth year. And then the market imploded and I lost a lot of money. You know, it was when I started to realize don't make decisions based on taxes because I didn't want to sell. Although I'd made a fortune, I didn't, I'd made it too fast. So I didn't want to pay uh, short term capital gains. So I either wanted to have a million six 
so I'd have an after-tax million if I pay the tax, or I needed to hold these assets for longer than a year. Hmm. And uh, the market imploded before that came through a year. So that million dollars in equity turned into a few hundred thousand dollars or something, but that still changed my life. Hmm. So when that changed my life, I you know, sold everything when the market imploded and said, okay, I got to find something else. And that's what turned my attention to publishing. And I became an author and began writing books first for academia and wrote books for universities. And it helped me build my... Remember, that was my goal. Focus on education, focus on contributing to society and and focus on building a support network. So by then I had a very strong support network. I, I, I began publishing books that were used in universities. And that's how I developed my relationship with Carol. Um, we fell in love and she became my partner and she's still my partner. So we were married. We've been married for 20 years and, uh, it all started inside of the prison visiting room. And then I used my money to help her and she became a nurse and, uh, that always with a plan, you would become a nurse and I would continue writing and publishing. And then when I come home, I'll build a career around my journey. And that's what we've done. So I, yeah, I went to a halfway house in 2012. I, I, at that time, I still had like a hundred grand in the bank and she was a, in a master's program, getting her nursing uh, degree. And, uh, I started my career, uh, right from a halfway house. You know what I love about stories? I, I say like yours. I mean, yours is very unique, but you know, the, the redemption type story. So, uh, do you know Andre Norman? Does that name ring a bell? I don't know. Oh, so wait a minute. I do. I, I do. He's an African-American guy. Yeah, yeah. He was a federal inmate in uh, out of Boston for a number of years and then got out, went to Harvard, uh, won a fellowship from Harvard for kind of pretty much resolving the community versus police strife in Ferguson after the Michael Brown riots. Uh, and he's got a big brand now. So he's he's in a similar space as you. Yeah, I, but, I have I have connected with him. I, I don't know in some kind of way, but I, yeah, yeah. I do know him. But that that identity shift, right? That 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 redemption story. And um, uh, I had Michael Francis on this podcast, who was a former Colombo crime family boss, right? And and same thing goes from one life to the other. And the reason why I think that's that's so relevant is like for me, I went from a W two employee as a, an executive with an insurance company, and then decided I was going to leave that and become an entrepreneur. And that 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 gap, that chasm, felt wider than oh my god, I, it's the riskiest thing in the world. Crazy, how could you? You went from federal inmate. To you know, full on entrepreneur, right? Like you went from drug kingpin by the statute to federal inmate to entrepreneur, and one of the things I think about in that chasm, going especially in my role in real estate investing, going from W uh, two employee over to over to entrepreneur or not employed, is people get nuts. Well, oh, but what about I can't get financing like I can for a W two to buy a house, right? You came out of prison with zero credit, zero ability to buy, and you bought a three or four hundred thousand dollar home days after you left prison, if if I'm not mistaken, or a year, within a year after you left prison or whatever it was. But uh, could you just share, like, how did you do that? How did you buy a house? It doesn't, you know, I think, I think it's all about, you know, visualize success from the very beginning and, 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 you know, the right decision at the wrong time is the wrong decision. So I started, didn't like that, start planning to get out of prison you know, the day I got out of prison, I started years before, right? I, I knew, I didn't know when I was going to get it exactly, but I, I, I had a, a range, you know, I knew that in 2010, I could start seeing, okay, you're going to get close. You're, you should get out in 2012, maybe 2011, maybe mid 12. I didn't know. But so I started writing letters, right? To business leaders and, and 
cultivating relationships with people that I wanted to interact with. As we said earlier, those avatars. And, and I cultivated those relationships. And one of them was with a really successful business owner in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and I would just write unsolicited later. So I'm in prison. You know, I made a lot of bad decisions. And if that turns you off, um, no, no need to read further. But, you know, this is what I did while I was in prison. This is what I want to do for you. I've, I've read about you. I admire you. I'd love to have an opportunity to just work for you. If you give me an opportunity, I'll work for free for two weeks. And if I'm not the hardest working, most capable guy there, I'll shake your hand and thank you for the opportunity. Um, but if you do find me worthy, I, I'd love to have an opportunity just to intern with you and learn with you. And, and that led to a lot of relationships. You know, you send, you know, lots of those letters out and it's kind of unusual. I mean, you can see like, I mean, I get lots of these letters from people in prison every day because I write, right? And people are right. always doing that to me, right? Yeah. So it's kind of unusual. You get a letter like this one that says um, FCI Fort Dix, federal prison, right? You you might open it. And and that's what happened. So develop that relationship. He uh, Then I nurtured the relationship. So you, know, you got to find your own lead. Then I nurtured the lead and continued writing what I am doing. And then he'd offered me a job. And when he offered me a job, you know, this guy was a really successful developer and business owner, and we developed a friendship during my last couple of years before I surrendered, before I got out. And I think I was in the halfway house. I got to a half house on a Monday. By Wednesday, I had permission to go get my driver's license. Um, by Friday, I had an opportunity to go see him for the first time. And so I went to the office and saw him and he came to see me and he told me he wanted me to work directly with him. And I said, you know, I appreciate that, but I really, this is just a stepping stone for me. I really want you, I really want to build a career around my journey and I want your help. And he said, I just tried to give you help. I tried to give you a job. <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, um, yeah, but what, but what I really want you to do is help me. I said, he said, how do you want me to help you? I said, I want you to sell me a house. This is like my fourth day out of prison. And he laughed at me and he said, um, well, uh, you have any money? And I said, I do have any money, but I don't want to use it because I need to use my money to start my life and my career. And he laughed and he said, so do you have any credit? And I said, um, I do. And by then I'd, had, I'd, I'd learned how to use my phone and I went to Credit Karma and I saw that I had a zero, zero, zero credit score. <laughs> and I said, look, I've got a zero, zero, zero credit score. And he laughed just like you laughed. And he said, I've never seen that. And I said, yeah, well, yeah. I didn't exist <laughs> before. You know? And I said, but bad credit is worse than no credit. I've got no credit. And then I just told them, I said, Lee, you know, you're a guy that's built many million dollar businesses. I mean, he had a billion dollar business. And I said, you build, you're a developer, you're a retail owner, you, you know, you're, you've got a rancher, you've got a lot of business. And you sow a lot of seeds without expecting to see a result for years to come. I said, you've seen how hard I've worked in prison. I'm hungry. Don't look at me for who I am right now. I want you to see what I'm going to be in five years. And... Um, and I want you to sell me a house. And he said, uh, okay. He said, I tell you what, I'm going to sell you a house. Um, I, I can't sell it cheap because it's going to ruin my comps. And it was a brand new house. He said, so 400 grand is the price. But he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, I don't have to pay a commission. So I'm going to take that off and put that towards your down payment. And then he said, if you could stay that motivated while going through 26 years in prison, I want you to go talk to my team. And he had like 500 employees. So he said, I'm going to pay you five grand or something like that for every place you go talk to. And we'll apply that to the down payment. Hmm. And then when you get credit, and I'll carry it interest only. And when you get credit, 
then you carry me out. And so that was how I started in real estate. And he's still my partner today. Um, but, and my, one of my closest friends, but that's how I started. And that's exactly what I tell people. I said, you know, there's always a way to overcome a challenge, to overcome a struggle, but you've got to do a lot of work early to get ready for it. Yeah. And, and you, you ask great questions. Who are my avatars? And then you met your avatar with Lee, it sounds like, right? So I'm, I'm big on this, man, that, that power of community. That's why I love the community I belong to with this uh, with this mastermind that we're part of here with GoBundance. But uh, being around incredible people and investing in your network, to me, is the hedge against anything, any downturn, any anything. If you've got the right people in your life, um, mm-hmm. to me, that's the best hedge you can have. I want to talk about prison professors uh, in a moment, but one just sort of final dangling thing that I had on here that I want to ask about. When you uh, went to prison, prior to that, you mentioned about you were in your father's business. You had taken 100000 I know you gave that back, but your parents were were sort of no debt, um, you know, run the business well, live a good life, and you scaled it. You did the some of the other things that were maybe a bit nefar- more nefarious. So by the time you went to prison, their business at some point, uh, maybe shortly thereafter, had collapsed. So there's a lot of a lot of wreckage. I know that you you uh, you had in your life. Were your parents? I, I don't even know. Were they alive when you were released, or were they alive? Are they alive today, or were they alive long enough to see, you know, this this version of you that you became? Fortunately, unfortunately, they're not alive today. My father, I think it was just really devastated my father what I had done, and and he was so sad and scared for me. Yeah. And it just completely, it, it just sucked the life out of him. And fortunately, he did see me make this commitment to change my life and go to school. And he, but, but by the time, I think I was in my eighth year of prison or 10th year when he died, um, he contracted Alzheimer's very early. And uh, yeah, he died, I think when I was in my eighth year or so. But by then I'd gotten my master's degree and he was so proud of me. And I was so grateful to try and show him a better, that I was going to be better. My mother was with me uh, and, and she saw me become successful when I came home from prison and build businesses and and build a community. And she was, um, you know, it was very great, grateful that she got to see that side of me. Um, she contracted cancer though and, and died uh, in 2017. Wow. But my grandmother, who's 101, is still with me and and uh, I get to see her every week. So she's 101. So you, I put you at what? You're 59 at this point. I'm no? 58 right now. 58. Yeah. Wow. So she's 101. So you're everybody had kids young, I guess, right? When <laughs> 25 ish, you know, sort of, sort of thing. So uh, that's amazing. All right, let's talk about uh, prison professors. Uh, what are you? What are you seeking to accomplish? What is the vision? The mission? Whatever you want to share about that uh, that not for profit. Yeah, it's a. Um, I create digital content for people in jail and prison. I mean, there's a, I, I think that mass incarceration is one of the great social injustices of our time. And uh, there are many people that go to prison. And, you know, what I've seen is the longer you expose somebody to corrections, the less likely they are to emerge successfully. And so I think that's a big flaw in our system. And my goal is to try and help people in prison understand, or really, all justice impacted people, whether somebody's under a government investigation or going through a judicial process or in prison or coming out of prison, I want to give them the tools that they can use to transform their life and and to stop being a victim of of past decisions, but rather empower themselves uh, by thinking differently. So I create digital content that are either books or um, um, video audio programs and I distribute them. My clients are institutions. So 
uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons, um, state prison systems hmm. um, across the country. And, and, and I create this content. And that's, this is the way it traditionally it, it started as a regular for-profit, one of my for-profit businesses. Recently, I transitioned in, into a nonprofit because I'm really striving to scale now to um, reach millions of people. And um, I'm very excited about it. But the institutions are actually investing in this. So there's a there's a commitment, it sounds like, to rehabilitation versus, I don't know, previously it didn't feel like, it was always called rehabilitation, but it didn't feel like that was really the objective. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the agencies pay me a licensing fee for my yeah. content, an annual licensing fee to, to receive it. And then they disseminate it to people in their, either their institutions or the entire uh, system. So like California State Prison is a... The whole system is a client of mine. So every state prison in California receives the prison professor's programming. And people that go through it can can even earn time credit off of their sentence. Hmm. So I'm really tr- striving to build that now. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a great opportunity with the, with the way the system is changing. So I'm, I'm putting together a kind of a coalition of thought leaders and and business people that are sponsoring it because I can show them that this nonprofit's a little different. Many nonprofits are like per, uh, always asking for money, but mine, I already, you know, receive licensing fees in excess of a hundred grand a year. And I think I can take that to about 2 million a year in five years. So I'm building this to, to get to that stage. And there are some some investments that I have to make. And I think the better way of doing it is through a nonprofit where I can get high net worth people to participate and invest for the next five years to make an impact. So this is about really making an impact on society and resolving um, a, a great social injustice and intergenerational cycles of failure. And, and, and I'm very enthusiastic about it. The objective on the back end, I think, makes so much sense. Rehabilitation so people can be reintegrated into society and have a life, not be not feel the draw to go back. Because I know that's always been an issue for people coming out of the system. But is part of the objective as well, uh, you know, um, uh, reform around sentencing guidelines, you know, the, the, you know, reducing reducing the percentage of the population or the number of, uh, of uh, those that are incarcerated? Is that also an element of this? So there's a lot of programs that focus on that side of it you know mass incarceration is a is a huge systemic problem including what you just described but to solve all of the problems is kind of like trying to boil the the ocean you know it's too right. big is it, it mass incarceration has been growing for more than 50 years and it afflicts uh, millions of people there are collateral consequences my area is very specific I'm on a niche area where I want to help justice-impacted people work to get a better outcome. Given, hey, the situation's unfair, the system's unfair, there's a lot of problems, there are um, many complications, succeed anyway. And that's what I teach people. I never ask anybody to do anything that I didn't do and that I'm not still doing today. And I document it and I show you this is a path that you can use as well. Amazing. Amazing. Wow, what a story. I, I, I... So glad I found you, found uh, your story, and was able to bring it to everybody that's listening today. Uh, where do you want to direct folks, Michael? Where can people learn more about you or Prison Professors, wherever you want to t- send Yeah, people. Prison Professors has a platform everywhere, you know, but the, the, the website really shows what I am doing. Um, if it's okay, because I'm going to be sharing this with people in prison, is, is, uh, is it okay if I ask you a couple of questions? Of course. 
Of course, yeah. happy to. So, so one of the things that I do is 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 help people in prison see the authenticity that if you do develop really strong communication skills, good critical thinking skills, and an insane self-directed work ethic, you can overcome. And I'm curious about your group, Abundance. You said that it's a, it's a tribe yeah. of Go Abundance. It's a tribe of millionaires, and they're all successful entrepreneurs. Um, and I want to let people in prison understand, hey, you're, you're making decisions today that are either going to lead you to homelessness, to unemployment, underemployment, back to prison, or become successful. Yeah. And I want them to, I always like to show them what, what does it mean success? So I'm very transparent about my business and how much my revenues are and how I earn and where I live and everything like that. I'd like to hear a little bit about your mastermind program. What do people pay to be a part of that? So uh, ten to 15000 annually to be a part of it, plus you pay for different trips that we have. And all of these people are already successful. They've already got, you said that the requirements are to have a million dollar net worth. Is that right? Correct. Financially successful. Correct. Yep. And and so the the, the takeaway that I would have in there, and the, if I were in prison, is, is to ask yourself, who are you investing in? Are you investing in other people? Because a lot of people would say, you know, they don't, they don't grasp the connection that I've got to continue investing in myself if I want to scale from a million to 10 million. And yeah. that's why people would join your group. All right. What's the takeaway that they're getting for being a, for spending 10 to 15 K they've already got a million dollar business. What are they getting? So uh, the, the idea behind GoBundance that I love is that, yeah, wealth is the minimum requirement to get in, but the, the balance is across six different, what we call pillars, right? So you've got uh, yes, we want to build our wealth and we want to, you know, build legacy wealth for us, for our families, all of that. But uh, contribution, genuine contribution is a pillar. So it's something that we rally around. Like, how can we be the most contributory individuals we can be? Uh, authentic relationships, uh, adventure, health, accountability. Those are all the pillars that we sort of rally around. So as far as I think you were asking, uh, 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 how do you know, we already have this business. What's the value or the benefit of being a part of this? One, it's to, and I say this to people all the time when they join, like, look, you're going to drop 10 grand, which isn't nothing. It's a good chunk of change. You're going to drop 10 grand to join a community. And then the best advice I can give you is go in, not thinking, what do I get back for that 10 grand? But now I have access to amazing people. How can I best contribute to them? What can I give, right? What can I best give? So for me, when I go in, I think about my my skill or superpower is I'm a really good connector. I just, it's a natural inclination for me. So when I hear stories like yours or anybody else, I want to just, I want to build your web. I want to help you build your web. I want to connect you to the guy that can help you with the thing if I'm not that guy. So, uh, so I think what GoBundance does really well is it gives people a platform to go in, add value to others and just understand that that's enough and the value will return itself as a result of that. So for me, it's that I also have the, uh, the, the benefit of being, uh, in charge of our future millionaires communities, uh, emerge and ascend. So I get to, you know, indirectly or directly mentor hundreds of people that are trying to find a level of success, not just financially, but in all those pillars. Like, yes, I want to be successful financially, but I don't want to isolate my family. I don't want to not be a contributing member of society. I want to do it all. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And, and, and I think I really, I hope that we're, we're answering questions for people in prison who many times are thinking, in terms of really short-term gratification, what's what's in it for me today? Yeah, yeah. But successful people think differently. They don't only say, I want to invest more and learn more in personal development. I want to read more books. I want to meet more people that are in different sectors and environments and learn what they're doing, and then take that information and apply it to our own life. 
And to the extent somebody's doing that, even if they're living in struggle, that person can build confidence, can build the skill set to overcome. And, and that's what I really hope people will, will see as I'm sitting here talking with you, a guy who surrounds himself with successful people. You, you might ask yourself if you're sitting inside of a jail or a prison, who are you surrounding yourself with? Are the, are the people that you're surrounding yourself with as committed as you are to being successful? Or are they making decisions that are putting them in the crosshairs of, of, of problems and trouble. If you truly want to be successful, you got to do what we're learning from you, this tribe that you're describing. And, and, right. and that's what I really always like to emphasize because some people don't see it, right? A lot of times people will say that I'm really lucky, you know, and, I, and I'll say, yeah, I am lucky. You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I, I am lucky to be able to meet people like this and, and, and to leverage it and learn from them. And that's what I would encourage people in prison to do as well. Be, yeah. Don't expect anybody to work as hard as you're willing to work for your success. I love the phrase. It's cliche, but I think it's powerful. And it is proximity is power, right? Proximity is power. Who you surround yourself with matters. And then with those folks, the more like you did, you you were safe in prison or you, you, you gained safety in prison in part, you said, because you contributed to others. You taught people how to read. You, you, know, you were in contribution, right? So you're out, you're surrounding yourself with the right people. You're looking for ways to, to add value to others. That success, the, the the monetary reward or the the uh, whatever reward you look for, success is derived, I believe, from the right people and contributing to those people, which is honestly what I heard from your story as we talked. I, I use this analogy that I'm sure you've heard before. So when's the best time to plant an oak tree? Yeah. Uh, uh, t- yeah. What, 20 years ago? Exactly. And the second best time? Today. <laughs> so that's something to say about it. Everybody could look back 20 years ago and say, what could I have done differently you know, 20 years ago that would have put me in a different position? And to the extent you think about that, regardless of what crisis you're going through, what challenge you're facing, you, you can say, well, what do I have to do today? But, it, but it's really not just, you know, the analogy I use, I take it a little further in prison. I kind of develop it when I'm giving this presentation in prisons. I say, it's one thing to plant the seed, yeah. but is that all you have to do? Do you just have to plant a seed and it's going to grow into an oak tree or do you have to do something more? Yeah. What else do you have to do? You got to water it. You have to cultivate it. Uh, I don't know. I'm not. Feed it, right? You got to feed it. it. (laughs) What do you feed it with? What do you feed it with? Nurture it with? Fertilizer? Fertilizer. Sure. Yeah. Make sure it has direct sunlight. What's fertilizer? What's it made of? Poop. Exactly. (laughs) So you say, just use the analogy. You plant the seed, put fertilizer or poop. Yeah. over the fertilizer, right? And then it's got to grow through the poop. So be willing to grow through a lot of poop if yeah. you want to become successful. You right. know, it's not just it's not just planting the seed. It's not just saying you want to be successful. You got to do everything within your power to make it happen. I love it, man. Wow. Amazing. Wow. This is, uh, yeah, I'm all fired up. I know you got to go. So Michael, man, thank you so much for being on. And uh, I hope this adds value to your audience as well. So thanks again for for everything you do and hope to stay in touch. Well, I'd love to stay in touch, but because many of the people are in jail and getting out, some of them in my audience, right? They're in prison. Some of them are serving multiple years or multiple decades. Some of them are in jail getting out really soon. Could you also tell them how to find you and how do they become a member of them? They may not have a million dollars, but maybe they want some mentoring to be a millionaire in the making. How would they do that? What would they do? If they're they're getting on social media uh, at the Jamie Gruber on Instagram, uh, that's me. Uh, and uh, you can go to gobundanceemerge.com, G-O-B-U-N-D-A-N-C-E, 
emerge.com uh, to look up an opportunity to join a, a tribe that doesn't require the millionaire net worth, but teaches you goal setting, vision setting skills for you to get to where you're trying to get to, which, you know, whether that's a million dollars in net worth or being a millionaire in some other, other facet of life, the skills are the same. Have a vision, create goals, execute on great habits, have a plan, everything you talked about, and then proximity. That's really what the, what the, uh, the, the power of that community provides for. So yeah, I appreciate you asking. And well, I'll put some show notes with this video so that people sure. will be able to find you. And I just appreciate you for being so generous and allowing us to share this content with people in prison as well. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.